Hey, welcome back to the show. It's Field Goals Podcast. I am Dan Viennes as we wrap up January and uh, get set to wrap up the NFL season. Just two more weeks left now that we have uh, put Championship Sunday in the books. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk some defense mostly today. That seems to be what's foremost on everybody's mind. Of course, there is the Geno Smith question. We're not going to get into that today. We're going to talk defense for the most part, defensive scheme, defensive players. How's how are the Seahawks going to get better on that side of the ball? And uh, what are some of the things we saw this weekend from some of the teams that played that might give an indication of the direction that the Seahawks might need to go? And who better to talk about uh, with that than Griffin Sturgeon of the Seattle Overload podcast that he does uh, with Maddie Brown. Um, great show. If you haven't listened to it, hopefully after today you will. They get into X's and O's, uh, have a very, very unique perspective on how they view the game. Griffin, thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I know you joined, uh, you talked to Dana early in the season. You guys talked offense at the time for the most part. But right now, (laughs) I I think we can all agree that let's just set the quarterback uh, issue aside for a moment. Um, Let's talk about the other side of the ball. And specifically, first, I want to get your thoughts on what you saw this weekend from the four teams that played in the championship games um, and, and specifically what you saw from those teams. If you, if you gleaned any kind of common uh, trait or characteristic of those teams sure. that, that, that contributed to them all being there and specifically how that relates to where the Seahawks are and kind of how far they are away from getting there themselves. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think I saw what everyone else saw, which is just an absurd, an absurd concentration of talent. Um, I mean, it's crazy. Like the 49ers, they're, they're, you know, they're a a Titan on defense and we just saw the Eagles run all over them. Right. So, I mean, that speaks to how much talent the Eagles have. Right. Um, In the, uh, in the AFC champ or um, yeah, the AFC championship game, Chris Jones, just, he, he might've delivered Kansas city, you know, uh, the, the Super Bowl himself, you know, with how he played. I mean, one of his best games ever. And he, he is as good as you can get without being Aaron Donald really. So, um, I mean, it's ultimately it's, you know, scheme counts for a lot, you know, team cohesion balance counts for a lot, but you, you need dudes in the right places to, to make a difference. And that's, if Seattle's missing one thing in particular, it's, it's the top end talent, you know, the, the, the very top. Um, so, so that's where they have to, that's where they have to improve the most, I'd say. Well, let's talk about that. Um, because that has been the debate throughout the year. There's been a lot of talk of scheme and, and scheme is a sure. concept that it's hard for some fans to wrap their heads around. And, and that's kind of what I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on here, cause you're really well-versed in the X's and O's, but let me start with this. Cause we're going to get into scheme, the changes they made and the changes we saw throughout the year. It was very fluid. Sure. But how much can talent make up for how much a, a scheme weakness or, 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 or um, coaching deficiencies can you can you cover up for with just pure talent sure well i think so for this year's the 2022 seahawks there are two conversations it's <clears throat> what the floor talent with the, the 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 talent floor is and then what the talent ceiling is and then from there what is what can you realistically expect out of the coaching staff um i think we all agree that the talent ceiling is not there so even if say whatever that mark is, say the coaching staff did a hundred percent what they needed to do. The, the, the talent of the team is such that it still wouldn't push them into, you know, top, whatever ranking you want, five, 10, whatever, even above average. Um, that said, I think there's enough talent 
of like complementary pieces, the pieces that need to be there to support an extra, you know, all pro player or two, and then maybe an additional pro bowler, fringe pro bowler to where that they still could have been an average defense this year. Hmm. Um, that, that's what I, that's what I feel. And, you know, at times that kind of, they might, at times it looked even better than that than at times they looked way worse. So however bad it was it, and however good or bad they truly intrinsically are, they were much better, I feel, talent-wise than the results we were getting on the field. And that makes me, I feel like you kind of have to point to coaching there. Um, but I still see lots of cause for, you know, for hope there as well, he- heading into next year. After all, I mean, Clint Hurt was a rookie play caller. Yeah. Sean Desai, who has lots of experience, but he only has one year of play calling under his belt. Um, so, and Carl Scott, awesome assistant that they... Uh, that they brought in, but he himself is on the younger side. So it's, you know, this is a group that's going to have to grow no matter what happened this year anyway. And that's something I found really fascinating. uh, Just following you on Twitter throughout the years, there were times that you came to the defense of some of the players that were on the field and that, and that maybe fans were just too quick to blame it all on talent. But, but we're talking margin for error here, aren't we? When you, when you don't have those game wrecking players, you just, you almost have to be perfect week in, week out. Right. Yeah. And I mean, a, a lot of the issues that we saw, I mean, in some cases I've felt like, you know, maybe the wrong players c- catching heat for something. Maybe it's another player at times. It's kind of like you I've, blaming any one individual kind of misses the point. I feel cause it's like, you know, you can only defend with what you're being asked to do. Um, but, but then other times, absolutely superficially, at least it's an execution problem. But when I, if you, if you feel like, there's a better call or a better collection of scheme that exists to put that player in a better situation. It can still, it can still point back to coaching. Um, now that's not to absolve the players of all blame there, but it's just to say that there's like a balancing act that's going on there. And at times I thought Clint hurt and, and, and everyone else nailed it like completely mm-hmm. like this is exactly what they need to be. And then we see them kind of, at least from what, what I can tell. Um, and then you start to see them, uh, like roll it back a little bit, you know, to the, uh, in, in favor of some other stuff that they're trying to make work. Um, and like, I still saw the thought process, what they're trying to be, but it's just, is this, is this working out in the aggregate the way that you want it to? And ultimately it, uh, it, uh, it didn't. So. Interesting. You bring up two things there that I want to touch on. First of all, then when you felt like they were nailing it in your words and, and really dialed into how they should be operating the scheme, when was that? And what were they doing specifically? Well, it was that first Cardinals game, like week six, they had like a month stretch where they were just dominating and it didn't matter what the offense was doing. Um, and yeah, we can, you know, you can inject some of like, you know, uh, opponent strength into it if you want. But I mean, the Giants weren't slouches. The Chargers weren't slouches. Mm-hmm. You know, the Cardinals divisional opponent, they still have Kyler Murray back there, even though he's struggling. You can still throw a touchdown at any point. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not like they were facing bottom five offenses. Right. Um, and they utterly dominated them. Now, was that a true demonstration of how good they really were at that point or could be? I mean, during that stretch, they were like the third ranked defense. So I'm not saying that they had the potential to be the third best defense in the league, but I mean, I think it demonstrated that they could be significantly, I mean, Canyon's better than they were the first five weeks. Uh, but so what were they doing during that stretch? Well, so there is this whole talk over the off season about how they're switching to a three, four. And my thing was you can't switch to something that you already are. Uh, because starting in 2020, uh, it's when they, they, they kind of, they kind of, uh, 
eschewed their four three under over fronts and they started playing more bare, which is the type of three four front they run. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pete Carroll's always had that package in his defense. It's just been like like auxiliary, like a compliment, you know, like maybe a few snaps a game. Sometimes you don't see it for stretches. Um, but so in 2020, they started basing out of this completely. Ken Norton Jr. did like it was their main front. In fact, they 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 used bear or some three four esque front more than I think any single team in the league did in both 2020 and 2021. Hmm. Um, and the reason for that was they couldn't stop the Rams wide zone offense. They, 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 they I mean, they, they played even their four, three under or over front is still a five man front. You still got five guys in the line of scrimmage, even if only four of them has their hand in the dirt. Right. And they can't stop it. So they're saying the, the ball's cutting back and it's hitting one of the open gaps and the linebackers can't slide back in time. Even Bobby and KJ, the, 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 the stress of the scheme is too much. So we need to put all our chips into that basket. We need to bring down one of that defensive end, make sure he's a 300 pounder and have him play a three technique. So we have two, three techniques, one nose tackle, and then the zone runs have nowhere to go. And sure enough, they take mostly the same personnel from 2019 to 2020, and they go from like the 20th ranked run defense to the seventh. And it was just a scheme tweak. Hmm. Um, So they're more sound for it. Now, the problem with playing in a bare front all day long, especially when it's the only thing you do, give or take, on early downs, that is, is that there are a bunch of like, other types of runs, not just wide zone. So Kyle Shanahan started throwing. He's like, well, I like wide zone too, just like Sean McVay, even though I do it a little bit differently. But I'm going to start popping out those gap runs, power, counter, trap, stuff like that. And I'm going to hit the the C gap now. So in over and under, the B gap is a problem. Now in bear, you're trading the B gap for the C gap. Now the C gap's a problem. So they start hitting all this power stuff. So Ken Norton Jr., for all the faults he might have had as a defensive coordinator, as far as being sound for the run game, I mean, he had tools on his tool belt. So he threw out all these like line slants or like run blitzes. Um, And so their numbers against power or gap scheme runs were also really good. So he just had this full compliment. Like if Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan beat us, it's because they just destroyed us, moving us off the ball. It's not going to be because I didn't give my guys a chance to be schematically sound for what they threw out them. And sure enough, I mean, they kind of started to wrestle back, you know, at least defensively against the Rams a little bit. Um, and then, you know, they went four and zero against Shanahan the last two years in 2020, So they kind of, you know, like their thought process was, I think, proven to at least be good process on paper. Um, so then they head into 2023 and, um, or 2022, sorry. And then they, they fire Ken Norton Jr. As we know, promote Clint Hurt. And they talk about the three, four defense and everything. And yes, that's still their base defense. Uh, the thing is, they just don't play very much base defense, hmm. and so and and we we saw we saw the run defense regress. So the question is, is the three four does it work? Does it not? My answer is yes. The three four does work because when their num their numbers in three when they're actually playing bear in both base and nickel because they can play in base and nickel is identical to last year. They're giving up three point seven yards per carry when oh. they're bare, which is what they gave up last year in it. Hmm. The only difference is they're just doing less of it, and it really, it it's. I mean, that's still an oversimplification. But as far as like, well, how do the numbers add up to what they are? Where they're giving up like five point one yards per carry overall, and they're playing, you know, like bottom ranked efficiency, whatever it is. It's because they're not playing what they're good at a lot of, um, and there's a reason for that. Um, but I think ultimately that's kind of what it stems down to. And, you know, Clint Hurt has to essentially, he has to decide when to apply what packages that he has and when. 
Um, Cause I think he has the answers. I mean, he was on staff and not only was he on staff when they had s- solutions, he's also the defensive line coach. So he was as intimately involved yeah. with the run fits as anyone on staff could be. And it's probably why they decided to promote him as well. Like he knows his stuff. He just decided to go into like a slightly different direction within the world that they were already living in. So. Hmm. So it sounds like, first of all, we hear a lot about bare front and you touched on it there, but that means a five man line, right? Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it looks that way. Yeah. I mean, you got three guys with their hands in the dirt flanked by two outside linebackers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so when you talk about how they just didn't play a lot of base, is that because they played more nickel? Did they basically yeah. sacrifice what they were doing uh, or sacrifice some of that potential against the run uh, in order to try to cover better? Yeah, I, I, I believe so. And, and we have, there's, um, I mean, so they can play base in Nick or they can play bear in base and nickel. They are playing more nickel this year total. But so the big decision they made this year was within their nickel package, which they match 11 personnel with and 10 personnel, but they see very little 10 personnel. So 11 personnel. So you got three receivers last year against 11 personnel. They played nickel bear. They called it Falcon last year, but it doesn't matter. They called it, they played nickel bear against 11 personnel on early downs. I think I looked it up 42% of the time. And their run defense numbers were really good against it because uh, teams still run the ball at 11, right? Um, right. Especially Sean McVay and all that. Yeah. And then this year they're, they're, they're playing nickel bear against 11 personnel, like 23% of the time. Mm-hmm. So they've eliminated like a hundred plus snaps of, of nickel bear and their numbers in nickel bear, especially from week six on where they kind of get their act together a little bit. They're ranked like the ninth best run defense and the 10th best pass defense when they play their, their other nickel package, which is paired with like an over front, it's uh, they use two down defensive linemen, four linebackers, five DBs. It looks like a four, two, but it's a, technically a two, four, but same difference. Their run defense rank is 29th, but their pass defense rank is fifth. So we can see the relationships going on there. They're dedicating more resources toward the pass and it's working. Their pass defense does marginally improve, but then the run defense absolutely tanks. So it's that trade-off. Would yeah. you take five and 29 versus nine and 10 is, is essentially the, the question they had to ask themselves. So then when, another thing you touched on before, when you talk about blame, right? And that's, that's sure. something that um, whether they're qualified to or not, you know, we're fans and, and yeah. we, need, we need to quantify how we feel about what's happening on the field. And the easiest thing to do is find someone to blame and find a scapegoat. And the easy scapegoat this year seemed to be the linebackers. Jordan Brooks, before he got hurt, took a lot of heat, wasn't getting off blocks. He was getting washed out. And Cody Barton seems to be everybody's favorite punching bag. Mm-hmm. But as it seemed, as the year progressed, it seemed to me that people who actually study the game, know the game, analyze the game, have played the game, had good things to say about Cody Barton and that it, he was actually playing better than fan perception was. In your view, um, and especially before Brooks got hurt, of course, how were those guys doing? So, I mean, I think the way I characterize Cody is that I think he is a really good coverage linebacker. I mean, I think he's really smart. I think he is faster than he gets credit for. Maybe the long speed isn't there, but I think like in you know a certain range, he, he can really move. Um I think Jordan Brooks is also a really good cover linebacker. Um, but but uh, back to back to Cody, I think when they play bear, when they, or at least especially any five down front, 
I think um, like contact is a problem for him. I, I I do agree with that. But when he plays with this against any five man front, especially especially bare three four variant fronts, um, there are fewer offensive lineman climbing to the second level. So essentially he's free. And if, if he can diagnose the play, he can preempt contact and he's totally fine. I mean, I think the the best example of that is when he filled in for Bobby last year toward the end and that um, Lions and Cardinals game, I thought Cody was awesome, like flying around everywhere and he barely got touched because they're playing a front that keeps the linebackers clean and he can just use his eyes and use his speed in the box to get to where he needs to be. And he's not a problem. Um, so that's how I view Cody, but when they go into that two, four, five front, there's a lot more free climbers. They're also asking them to play pass first with their eyes. They're, they're clearing the threat of the pass, then playing the run. Um, the defensive linemen in front of him are being asked to play techniques that they're not used to, or at least they haven't been playing a lot of recently. So it's system failure across the board. And when that occurs, I mean, in my view, everyone looks bad. So I feel like what is, I mean, what's the value in just saying, well, you need to airdrop in a better linebacker here. I mean, what is the marginal difference there? Um, so that, that's how I view Cody um, with Jordan. Um, I mean, I thought, I thought Jordan actually was having a pretty good year with the exception of some uh, coverage busts early on in the season. Um, the way I view those, I mean, yeah, he's, he's got to do better, but they, they came in very like hyper specific calls with like his standard, like meat and potatoes, like what they do 80% of the time. I thought he was rock solid in um, like Cody. I thought he did excellent when he they were playing bare fronts um, uh, in, in the two, four, five. I mean, it, was, it puts a lot more stress on, on the linebackers because you're the A gaps and the B gaps are now open. So, and then a lot of these teams like to use jet motion that changes your gap less, less, last second. And it was just, I mean, it was things were going haywire. And I really don't think that the linebackers were set up for success in that way. Um, that said, I, I, there were games where they kind of put it all together. But uh, a lot of it is being uh, the other side of this is that when we say like schematically unsound. So in this two four five front that I keep talking about, they defend like the, the base call that most teams run is some sort of zone variation or, or another one that's kind of similar, although it's it's a... It's gap scheme technically, but there's no puller. It's called duo. So their numbers against duo and zone, whether outside zone, inside zone, whatever, split zone, doesn't matter. They're ranked like 17th in the league against um, against those runs um, in 245. So 17th isn't great, but it's not disastrous. Yeah. If they could have gotten 17th best run defense paired with the fifth best pass defense, you'd take that. I would take that. Like, fine, stay in that front. The problem, though, is that when they get those pullers, those gap schemes, when they only have four guys in the line of scrimmage, they're out leveraged, they're picked off. It's I don't think you could fault any one individual for not being able to make a play when they're just, Clint Hurt is willingly staying in this front, not throwing any like line movement or slants or, or, or um like run blitzes at it or anything like not changing the picture post snap at all. They're basically telling the offense, like, Hey, come get us. So yeah, Jordan Brooks is getting picked off. Cody Barton's getting picked off. Shelby Harris is getting down blocked on. But if you're at, if, if your scheme hinges on a guy blowing through a block snap after snap after snap, or it requires two all pros to even be functional, like let alone good, but just functional, you probably need to get out of that scheme or add stuff to it to, to, to make it last. So here, here, here's, here's one example. Cause I know it feels like, 
like my myself watching at home, like how can you just say it's a player problem? So the Seahawks offense, the flip side of the same coin, uh, their gun run game this year was like bottom five in efficiency. So like like uh, first and 10, second and like zero to five yards or whatever, like they're not a good run team. But then their second and 10 running efficiency is like top three. Hmm. So like how like how, how does that work right yeah. well so on second and 10 they they pass the ball almost more than anybody so defenses then are like all right we're going to be in a pass oriented personnel package we're going to play a pass rush oriented front and then all those runs they run are runs that they never run in any other context they're scheme breakers and they this is an extreme example because it happens so rarely but it's the same principle applying to the Seahawks run defense in the reverse just on a less extreme scale um so, so like the, that Bucks game. So they Bucks ran all over him, right? Yeah. Leading up to that point, the Bucks only run like duo and inside zones. Well, how did they defend duo and inside zone that game? They held him to two point two yards per carry. But then they ran counter and power. They went for like eight yards a carry. So what they're schematically sound for, even in the two four five, they can defend. They have the dudes to defend the stuff they're expecting and what the scheme can accommodate. But all the extra stuff, I mean, that's where you either have to spend less time in the front, spend more time in nickel bear, or like, hey, throw in some line slants, get action at it, you know, throw, you know, throw in a run blitzer from the slot, like get numbers at it. You gotta you gotta switch it up. So that that's how I that's how I kind of, you know, view that whole conundrum. It's interesting you bring that up. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day that it seems like compared to other teams that, that I watch every Sunday, that the Seahawks do less stunting and twisting up front than other teams. Am I wrong? I, I agree with you. So the, so the, the bucks um, or not the bucks, the Broncos, they run this two, four, five front a lot. And this is where, so Sean Desai, I mean, the front exists universally. Every team right. runs it, but how much you run it. Right. So Sean Desai, I'm not scapegoating him at all, but cause Clint hurt still agreed to it. Peak Carroll's the head coach. Like it still falls at their feet. So they ran a lot of this in Chicago. Like he decided like philosophically 11 personnel, we're going to be a pass rush oriented team, two, four, five. And Hey, Robert Quinn had 18 sacks. So, I mean, he, you can see his theory, but their run defense wasn't very good in it. And they were giving up five and a half yards per carry in it last year. Um, so the Broncos run it as well because Giro Evro is a Vic Fangio disciple. Sure enough, right. he's the DC and Fangio was there already. So his players know all the stuff. So they run two, four, five, and um, their numbers aren't great in it. But it's and we 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 talk about their talent, right? Their their numbers aren't great in it either, but it's better than Seattle's. I mean, they're giving up like four and a half yards per carry in this front. When they play bear, they're giving up like three and a half. So so it's a hard front to work at, but they just spend less time in it. But when they are in it, yes, they are better than the Seahawks. And why? Well, they they run a lot of not just pass stunts, but run oriented stunts. You know, they're, they're changing the math post snap. They're changing the picture stuff. I mean, Evero's throwing the book at teams. Hmm. Uh, it's really impressive. And and they kind of sustained injuries as well throughout the year. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, they're they're very static right now. And they're really running what I felt like uh, we were seeing in the preseason. I'm, and I remember watching the preseason like, well, either one, it's preseason and none of this is going to translate one-to-one. Or if this is how they f- want to build out of, surely they have more calls that they're just banking. They're not going to put out there. They're not going to put all their stuff out on preseason tape, right? Um, but uh, it says though they just played applied their preseason install for the whole season. So it's hmm. it's it's bizarre, and that's why the the early returns were so horrid. 
And then when they tweaked the scheme, kind of got back to some of the run scheme that they had in 2021, coupled with the new secondary, that credit to the coaching staff got up to speed really fast, more or less. Mm. That's why the results were so staggeringly better during that middle month of the year. And then why did it turn the other way when it did? Yeah. Well, so, hey, it goes back to that Bucks game. That's week 10, right? That's that's right after the bye, right after their ninth game of the season. Um, so the Bucks, they only do what they do up to that point. And then Byron Leftwich completely 180s his whole philosophical scheme, everything. Like, And it was a one-time game plan. He didn't repeat that later on in the season. It was like mm-hmm. he just saved it coming out of the bye week. Um, so yeah, like, so they're thinking, okay, well, we just dominated the past four teams. We even did better in our two, four, five nickel front. So all this team does is they run gun inside zone and we see some duo and under center, some wide zone. So we don't need to... When they go into gun, we're just going to be we're just going to be nickel nickel over front. We don't need to be nickel bear team because, to their point, if they did what they always do, they were holding them to two point two yards per carry. Yeah. The problem is when they switch it up and throw those breakers at you, they don't have all those calls in their back pocket for mm-hmm. that week, like Ken Norton Jr. might have again for all his faults. They can't like cor- correct the ship right away, so. They're, they're just stuck. But so, yeah. So then why does, why do they not return to it? I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, so like I, I asked that question out of pure, pure, like innocent ignorance, like, well, why not just do the stuff you're good at? It's never that simple, but sometimes it feels that way. Right. Um, yeah. The only answers I can think of is that um, like Ryan Neal was getting banged up and, and Jonathan Abrams was having to play a lot. Tease Tabor was having to play a lot. What they ask of the safeties even if when it's not complicated, it's hard. When it's not hard, it's complicated. And you're asking, you're getting guys off the street to come in. And the, the two, four, five is, it's very simple as far as the breadth of things you can ask them. And the coverages that pair with the two, four, five are slightly different than the coverages that you pair with nickel bear, which looks like three, three, five personnel. So I think part of it was like, we don't want to task Abrams with any of this. We just want him to play like you're, you know, you're playing, you're in the slot, you're either, you know, playing a zone drop out to the flat or you're carrying a seam, a tight end, and we're going to ask you to do nothing else. You might be pulled into the box, go hit someone, that's it. And that's kind of what it felt like. Um, and the, they had some games where they kind of got it together. So, some run defense games were like, even in the two, four, five, like they were loading the box up, you know, just playing cover three, like forget the two high stuff because we need to fit the run. And they kind of got better. But then um, as soon as they try to ease out of that, play more too high, get back to what they think they can get away with, the dam breaks, you know, as soon as like Al Woods goes down, they, you know, you're done. Brian Monet tears his ACL. Yeah. You know, he's your backup nose tackle. Like it's just the picture is starting to fall apart. LJ Collier, Quentin Jefferson are playing too many early down snaps. Um, you know, so I, I feel like it was just kind of them trying to react to uh, their run defense being so poor. And that meant we need to simplify things. We need to just load the box up. And I think they thought they could be more versatile in coverage with a loaded box playing two, four, five, as opposed to playing with a loaded box with three, three, five nickel bear. Um, so I, I think it was just a confluence of factors. And even, even if it worked that, that the final month and a half or two months of the season worked better than it did, I still don't think there's any chance that would be what they try to be this off season and training camp coming up. Um, Cause it's just not what, you know, that's not what the Fangio tree does. It's just, it yeah. was more like a response to other factors. 
Do you think that, you know, when you go back to week one, do you think that it, it, how much weight do you think they put on Jamal Adams and, and the role that they envisioned for him? Because it seemed like before he got hurt week one, that man, they were using him the way they envisioned when they traded for him in the first place. They're moving him around. He was making dynamic plays all over the field. And once he went out, you're missing that Swiss army knife. How do you think they put maybe too, too much of their eggs in Jamal Adams basket yeah. asking him to do too much or expecting yeah. too much out of him? I mean, so yeah, so I, one, like point blank, I absolutely think they, they attached and hinged a lot of their scheme, like the breadth of calls they can throw out there to this, to this guy, Jamal Adams, right? So he goes down, it's like, well, there goes that package. But then I think his, his uh, absence was compounded by the fact that Ryan Neal was also out for the first five, six weeks. So he was Jamal's understudy, not only his understudy, but he was part of the the three safety package that they were going to use too. So you're losing two thirds of your, you know, your, your safety group that you're planning to use. So I think that that's definitely an impact. Um, and then the other side of it is like Ugo Amadi had strengths and weaknesses, but without even getting into that, Kobe Bryant was their nickel. And that only had become a thing like three weeks into preseason, not even training camp, but preseason. So, so you may, I mean, whoever made that decision and whoever drove it, like they knew what they were signing up for. Like we can't make it work with Ugo. We really like Kobe, but this is a project by definition. So, and we're doing this like up to the last minute here. So we're signing ourselves up for some early struggles and also limiting what we can call because we don't want to put too much on this guy because he's a rookie and he's playing a position he's never played before. Um, I mean, that shows the trust they have in the long-term picture there, right? But at the same time, it's like the early returns coupled with Jamal being out and then Neil being out. And then Sidney Jones and Artie Burns not even being able to play at all in August because of the concussions they sustained. It's like, you know, you lost DJ Reed. It's you, you are, they, they had seven guys that played significant snaps in the secondary in 2021. And after the first quarter of week one, they had one guy standing and that was Quandre Dix. And he <laughs> himself is coming off an injury. So, I mean, it's no wonder the past defense suffered the first five weeks, right? But I'm, hey- they, I'm just having Josh Jones flashbacks now. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And like, <laughs> to his credit, like he's put in situations he wasn't, right. thought he wasn't even practicing, right? It's like, yeah. oh- I'm, I have to do Ryan's Neal's job doing Jamal's job now. Okay. Like I thought I was just going to be a package player. So yeah, it's there, there is, I mean, it was a perfect storm the first month or so. And then, you know, the coaching staff was trying to be something that they couldn't be yet. Um, so yeah. All right. So, so let's talk about what's next from, cause one of my favorite exercises is trying to take uh, things that Pete Carroll says and read between the lines and parse what he's actually saying. Cause he's usually not very forthcoming. Although I feel like he's starting to become a little bit more transparent than he's ever been in some ways. And then we also got to hear from John Schneider this week and, and he's famous for not giving us much either, but, right. but there are, there are often times where we can look back and think, Oh, hey, he was kind of hinting at this before. What right. have you been able to gather? What's your gut about which direction uh, we're going to proceed forward now, scheme-wise, based on how the year finished, what it looked like on the field, and also some of the things that Pete and John have talked about in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I think schematically the the, the answer for Pete is is really clear, and he's kind of already answered it, and that was the scheme tweaks they made around week six, where against 11 personnel, like, we're going to cut our two, four, five usage in half and replace it with nickel bear. And then, um, 
And then uh, from there, the additional side of it is reintroduce some of those line movement calls like fire zones where they're rushing five, playing zone behind it. Even though it's, it's scheme pressure, it's really a run blitz more than a pass blitz, but it can double. So I think his, his thing as well, we go back to what we did that middle month and then we, with the benefit of a full off season, we can build out of that and no one better to coach it than Clint Hurt because again, he's coached it himself before the previous season. And then Sean Desai and Carl Scott, Carl Scott, excuse me, can keep making magic with, you know, their, their fledgling secondary, who's going to get a year older. Um, and then, you know, who knows what happens at safety, but you know, they can, they can hold down the fort there. So I feel like schematically that that's how Pete thinks like, like the good news is that, what they did last year and what they did in 2021 exist in the same world. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't require substantial movements. It's just kind of living in different sections of your playbook a, a little differently. Um, so I, like, it's really convenient for them to make the tweaks they need. It's they're, they're not like, you know, they're, they're not, they don't have to twist the knife with, with guys to, to make it happen. It's, it, it's like really like path of least resistance really for them to do that. So let's talk about guys. Yeah. Uh, because Pete has been, that's where, that's right. an area that I think he's been his forthcoming and brutally honest as he's, as something we're not used to where he is, he's come out and been adamant about how this is where I think the 49ers are. This is where the top teams in the league are. And this is where we lack the personnel yeah. to compete with them. And specifically, he mostly talks about up front on both sides of the ball, but particularly sure. on defense. Sure. And, and what I saw this weekend was bigger physical defenses line, defensive lines kind of ruling the day. It would seem to me when I look at the Seahawks roster that one area that they seem to to have some depth in is that 3-4 outside linebacker type. Lieutenant mm-hmm. Nwosu was a revelation this year as a free agent signing. We saw Daryl Taylor kind of have a resurgence in the second half after a disappointing start. We saw some good stuff out of Boye Mafe later in the year. Uh, you know, we haven't even seen what Tyreek Smith can do. Alton Robinson was hurt. They have bodies there. Yeah. It it seems like and, and and this seems to echo what Pete's talking about. They need some bigger guys up front. Is that is that your feeling? So I yeah m- yeah, I, I would agree more or less. So I mean, it's it's really telling that he name dropped right off the bat Eric Armstead, Nick Bosa, right? Right. Um no, I mean, yeah, like you said Nick Bosa, if he played in this scheme, he'd be an outside linebacker, not a 4-3 defensive end, but um it's yeah, their their best pass rusher is Uchenna Nwosu, as we all know. And he is a really good player, but he's kind of the the fringe pro bowler type. If you want to have a ferocious four man rush and Uchenna Nwosu's on your team, he needs to be your you know, second or third best pass rusher on the team, really. If you want to have a fire breathing like the Eagles front or the or the 49ers front, um, you know, th- like you, you follow what I'm saying there. So like they they need in my mind, they need an elite three-down blue-chip defensive lineman slash outside linebacker. And I personally don't care if it's outside linebacker or the interior, just whoever is available, you, you have you have to snack. And then from there, they can make another, I think they can make like another complimentary move somewhere along the lines of perhaps another Nwosu. I don't know if that will come via existing players out in the league, free agency or trade or if it means the draft, but ideally they can acquire two. Um, now they do have so much draft capital. I wouldn't be afraid of like maybe flipping one of your day two picks for one of these edge rushers around the league mm-hmm. or interior rushers around the league and see what's possible there. Because there are some exciting options, guys that like aren't the 
the first or even second rung of pass rushers, but that third or fourth rung where those guys are still getting eight plus sacks a year, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, they got to add guys. As far as like run defense goes, I mean, again, like my mind goes back to when they play the fronts they're meant for, they're actually pretty dang good. Like I'm, I think Puna Ford, Shelby Harris, Al Robert or Al Woods are are a good group, um, at least in terms of like, if they were supporting a Chris Jones, you may not have a single complaint about the defensive line. Like, hey, I'll take Puna Ford as, you know, your third best defense. I'll take Al, you know what I'm saying? But the problem now is Al Woods is 36. He's about to be a year older. Puna Ford is a restricted free agent of some kind. Monet's out of the picture, unfortunately. Shelby Harris has a cap hit they're not going to pay. You might cut him and bring him back. But now they, they might just have, like you said, bodies, a body issue in the middle. They don't they may not have guys rostered now. Yeah. So they have to they have to they have to tap into their usual reservoirs where they, you know, they look at undrafted free agents, day three guys in the draft, the veteran minimum uh contract defensive tackles right tony mcdaniel ruben even woods when they originally got him but yeah they they need to add that that blue chip player because in my mind they have the supporting cast they just don't have they don't have the lead yet um to use a dumb metaphor (laughs) but but yeah so i mean yeah if, if you airdrop in you know some guys in this draft that we that we like and give them a year we might be feeling pretty good about the d line so when you talk about uh down, you know, down in the dirt, interior defensive lineman in, in, in a three-four scheme. We we still hear the term nose tackle being used, but what do the other guys look like? Because this is this is where I need to be educated on this. Because in my head, I'm thinking um, what we lack are those long, bigger framed defensive end types that stand up sometimes but can't put their hand in the ground too that are more 6'5", 6'6", 275, 280. Now you are talking about an Eric Armstead type to pair with more of a stout nose guy. Is there only room for, it it sounds like what you're saying is maybe there's only two of those guys at a time on the field and the rest of them can be the more angular, longer, more twitchy type players. So, I mean, like, so Seattle's interior right now, like first and 10, you got all your starters out there you know, this past year, it's Alwood's playing nose tackle and then Puna Ford as your defensive end playing three technique most of the time. And Shelby Harris playing three technique most of the time. Occasionally four eye where you're the inside shoulder of the tackle. Occasionally four technique where you're head up on the on the offensive tackle. Um, and if you just looked at those guys, I mean, you might look at Puna Ford if you didn't have any context and think is he even an NFL player because he's so diminutive. But sure. I mean, he, he makes it work, right? Um, and then Shelby Harris is kind of more like run of the mill three technique looking like you'd think he would exist in a four down front. But I mean, the the way they coach three, four these days, it really is like, it really is more, excuse me, uh, one gap principles more for the end. So really when you're talking three, four ends, you know, you're really talking just classic defensive tackle. And if you're good, you can kind of make it work in any scheme. Uh, now you can still have preferences. I mean, if they were running an old school three, four front, you'd want Al Woods in the middle flanked by two red Bryants. You know, you can still make red Bryant work in this scheme. You just don't have to go there. I mean, if you really wanted you just to make the point, you could have two Puna Fords there. If, if so long as they're good players, yeah, uh, they, they can make it work. But I think for, for, for this purpose, um, they just need to find a guy north of 300 pounds that hits their usual length specifications because they do have they do have like thresholds there looking at their draft history 
Um, and you just got to get players. And if and if they're good enough, they'll, they'll make it work. Whether they got to play three, four, I four, even the occasional five technique outside shoulder, like like uh, Puna Ford did this year, although not spectacularly. That was kind of what Pete was talking about, right? But like, yeah, he kind of called. He, that's one guy he did yeah. call out. He flat out yeah. said he was playing out of position. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah, you'd want in Puna Ford's case, you want a guy with more length there if he has yeah. to play all the way out of the five. Now. We've, we have two years running of Puna playing four and four. He can make that work, but five is a little too much. So the ultimate adjuster type, a guy that you can use to do any of that, that's where you start to look at the length to go, hey, yeah, he this guy can play three, but if we need him to play a five, if we need him to, to cross face on the tackle post snap and, and just use his length, that's where you want Eric Armstead. That's where yeah. you know you, you want some of those guys, Chris Jones, if, if you can get him. Um, so, yeah. So I know it's early, um, but I, I know from following you that you've, you've done, started to do some work, looked at the, you've looked a little bit at the free agent class that's out there and a little bit at the draft. Let's start with the draft because that's what everyone has turned their attention to. That's the exciting part of this offseason, even for the casual fan, because for the first time since Pete Carroll and John Schneider have been around, they have multiple, uh, you know, first and second round picks. And, and yeah. it's just something to get excited about. It's hard to get the casual fan excited about the draft when you're drafting 29th or when you've, you've traded out of the first round, either for a player or other picks for sure. Who in your, if you could choose right now, one player you want to be there at five, who would it be? Uh, Jalen Carter. It is. If if, if a beggar could be a chooser at at Carter, I would not. Does he meet those physical length and standards and measurables that, that you think that they're looking for? I think so. He, um, I mean, he could play three. I mean, he played in the college scheme where he played the four eye. Even when they go the two, four, five front, they have their own version of that at Georgia where you're playing like a two eye or like a three, you're playing three technique, but you're playing a little tighter. They call it a heavy three. He can do all that stuff. I mean, he is scheme proof. He's good at everything they ask him to do. Uh, like, like he does, people look at his production and they kind of, they fret a little bit, which I understand. But like he's asked to do a lot of grunt work in that defense. And, you know, there's not a lot of glitz and glamour to it. But he does the grunt work, the stuff that doesn't show up on the stat sheet really well, too. Yeah. So, I mean, he is, he is everything they could want of a 300-plus pounder to get onto this team. If he's not there, um, and, you know, most people seem to assume that he and Will Anderson, who I, I, I would assume that you like as well, but probably won't be mm-hmm. there under any scenario, uh, won't be there at five. But the more that we hear and the more that we know how thin this quarterback class is and how desperate teams can be to trade up, I, I'm starting to see a scenario where Jalen Carter could be there at five. If he's not, is there another guy there defensively or that, that you would feel comfortable taking and sticking and picking, or is the drop off from Carter to that next level of guys a little too rich for five? So the, the next guy, and a lot of people like him, I know I'm not, this isn't a novel thought of mine, but uh, Tyree Wilson is really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. And he a seems lot to of be these, the guy right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the, the drop off is still there between him and Carter and, and Anderson. Like there is a cliff there, but um, I feel like the drop off between him and the next guy is such that if you want to get a top 10 player, do you, do you test fate and trade back to seven, eight, nine and see if he's still there or do you just take the guy and yeah. call it good and you still get to pick again at 20, right? So like, yeah, I don't feel great about picking him at five, but I also don't feel great about testing fate and seeing if he's still there at eight, nine, 10, whatever you trade back to, if you trade back. So I would take him. The other guy that a lot of people talk about in that same vein is is uh, Murphy out of Clemson. What are your thoughts on him? Uh, 
I think that I'm not the biggest fan of him just, just like in general. Um, but I definitely see like, you know, like the, the path forward, so to speak. I mean, he can be a really good NFL player. I don't know. I, I feel like he has a fatal flaw. He's really not that agile. He's incredibly explosive. Um, he likes to use his hands. He might be a little unrefined there. Uh, he plays really hard. Um, but I think he has leverage issues and flexibility issues and they show up against run and pass. And on top of that, I don't think he's the most square scheme fit. And if you're going to take a guy that isn't a super easy scheme fit, they need to kind of wow you. Like you have to feel willing to make those accommodations for him, like fall over yourself to make those accommodations, schematic accommodations. And I'm not sure he's good enough to merit that. If he was there at 20, which honestly, I feel like he's the kind of guy that should go in the late teens, early 20s. If he's there at 20 and they didn't pick DL in the first 10 picks, I'd be like, okay, maybe we can, you know, get into that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, but otherwise, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of his personally. It seems like the reason he's kind of moved into the consensus top 10 in most of these mocks is, is the assumption is he's going to test really well, that athletically at his size, uh, he's going to get a lot of teams interested. I just, when I put on the tape and watch him, I just don't see anything dynamic out of him at all. Yeah. I mean, not that that can't be coached or taught. He just doesn't seem to have, you know, a lot in the toolbox. He just kind of relies on, on his strength and his physical ability, but I don't see it. I certainly don't see a guy that I would want to take in the top 10 there. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you just to put it this way, like he'll probably have a really good 10 yard split, probably have a decent 40, the broad jump, the vertical jumps will be there, but Jalen Carter's three cone might be better than his Mm. a good 50 pounds heavier, 60 pounds heavier. So Yeah. Yeah. And he's so young too, Carter. It's geez. Yeah. Um, let me yeah. ask you this, because uh, the other guy that that is really intriguing to me because he seems to fit those physical parameters that you talk about. And when you talk about an Armstead or a DeForest Buckner, some of those bigger, longer uh, interior defensive linemen, is the one guy that the evaluations seem to be all over the place on is Brian Brzee. And mm-hmm. physically, he seems to fit that exact mold you're talking about, but there's some real questions about his production on the field. Have you been able to, to spend much time watching him at all? I, I have. And I feel like he's a tough eval because he has all those traits. Like, I mean, for a guy of his stature, he's going to have good, he's going to have good jumps. He's going to have a good three cone. He's going to be really long. Um, he plays hard. Like, you know, so many defensive linemen get docked for effort. I feel like some of it's like, these guys are 300 pounds. They get tired. Um, I mean, he, he just goes hard, but I feel like he has a ways to go technique wise and he'd be a guy that I would be ecstatic if they picked in the twenties, like kind Mm -hmm. of like, a like a Malik McDowell kind of before things happen there, like kind of idea, kind of concept, right? Like, you know, he's more talent that he knows what to do with, you know, coach him up a little bit, but I don't think year one's going to be pretty for him. Um, I think kind of like Murphy, I think he has some leverage issues. He doesn't really kind of play technique first. He's just kind of throwing himself at guys, which works against college 18, 19 year olds sometimes. Uh, but uh, I mean, he like he played in the in a tough conference. Right. But right. I just don't he's not a guy that that excites me. Um, it's another situation where if he's at 20 and they didn't go DL early, then I'd be like with their first pick. I'd be OK, take take Brzee here. Yeah, that's kind of it's interesting that all those guys to me from that Clemson defense sort of fit that mold where it's like there's a lot of hype around Murphy and Brzee and Trenton Simpson even. But it's hard to find a lot of dynamic, uh, you know, game changing type plays on tape. It's yeah, I I agree. It's bizarre. Tell me this, regardless of 
uh, pick selection, regardless of round, are there some guys that you've seen in the early stages of this offseason in the draft that when you watch them on tape, you think that's a guy that would fit what the Seahawks need and what they're trying to do? Yeah, there are some guys, especially guys that other people have like, hey, have you watched this guy yet? And um, check him out. I totally agree with what, you know, they they, they were saying about him. So uh, what I'll, I'll do like uh, one guy who I think will probably go in the third round because he's so small, uh, Kalijah Kansi mm-hmm. at, uh, at Pittsburgh. I mean, he's... How would he fit? I mean... That, that's the thing. Like, like he, he may only be able to exist on pass downs. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's intriguing though about him is he, he's so agile and athletic, especially in like a, whatever, 15 by 15 yard box. He might be able to be a stand up edge on early downs. Hmm. And I mean, think about how explosive he is. I mean, was think he about six Brandy. foot. He's six foot 270, 280, maybe, you know, yeah. like I, what I see, what, Translating what he is athletically in my very amateur view to the NFL as an edge outside linebacker, two guys come to mind who are similarly sized. Brandon Graham, Philadelphia Eagles. Interesting. And Melvin Ingram. So, and then those are two guys, especially Ingram, that on third down, they play inside standing up. Hmm. Now, if if that if that whole, you know, can he play at edge in the NFL doesn't work, you can still trot him out and do a lot of cool things with him on third down or second along, whatever. You get backed up on first down with the penalty. It's first and 15. Yeah, trot out your pass rush fronts, right? Um, you could do fun things with him, but I think he gets especially interesting if you can play around with him a little bit, find ways to put him in base. He may not just defend the run well on the outside. You might be able to rush the passer on the outside. I mean, because they have some reps where he he's like the looper on a stunt where he's technically the contain rusher but he starts in the B gap as a three technique or something. And he's bending that thing. And I'm like, this guy can move. He can yeah, really move. He's, he's fun to watch. Um, yeah. So, 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 so that, that's a guy, another guy that comes to mind. He's another guy that he's kind of an odd fit. Like miles Murphy is, but I feel like he's good enough to where if he's there, like say in the early second round, I, I wouldn't hesitate. Um, if they trade back from 20, even, and he's there in the late twenties, I wouldn't hesitate. It's uh, Lucas Van Ness. Oh. Um, out of Iowa. I yeah. mean, he's classic, you know, he looks like a classic, you know, four, three defensive end, just speed to power guy, just bullies you, just beats you up. You know, the technique is coming along. He doesn't have any like major deficiency. Like, you know, he doesn't have a hand placement problem or, you know, he doesn't have, he's not super unagile. He just isn't the most agile guy. Right. But I mean, his speed to power is NFL caliber. I mean, tackles, if, if they're on their heels, he's going to bull them. He's going to bull rush them and he's got counters to get off of it. Relentless motor and all that stuff. So it would be, if he if if they draft him, we're going to kind of have to bite our tongue a little bit because we're going to see him drop every so often because he's a three-down player. That means you're going to have to see him drop every so often. Probably have to play outside linebacker. But on nickel, you can squeeze him down, have him play inside, rush the passer, he can do a lot. So, um, yeah, he, he's like, I mean, he honestly, he might be strong enough that he could play the three technique or four eye a little bit, the defensive <laughs> end and make it work. Cause I mean, everyone's weight is different. He's about 280. Michael Bennett was 280 and he could play three technique for all three downs if he wanted. I think he has that kind of play strength, but they just don't use him a lot that way in college. So that's more of a projection though. But so he's, he's another guy that comes to mind. It's he's, he's another one that's fun to watch. And he's one of my favorites uh, to this point. And, and the interesting mm-hmm. thing about him is, is he's literally never technically started a football game in Iowa and, and they, they used him in a rotational role. And, and so it's hard to find tape. 
You know, yeah. you, you have yeah. to find you have to find those cutups that people post where it's just an entire game showing the entire uh, Iowa defense. And you have to pick him out. It's, you're not going to find any of that tape where he's isolated or or anything sure. else other than a couple of highlights here and there. Um, sure. Interesting stuff. Uh, tell me about this guy because we talked about uh, Monet going down, and it sounds like that you know it's more than just a common ACL. That might be a really tough knee injury. That's a lot yeah. more, um, a lot deeper than we thought it was going to be, and he might have trouble coming back from that. And then Woods potentially being a cap cut, and if not, you know, just getting older, et cetera. Um, Siaki Ika is the one guy kind of in this draft mm -hmm. that stands out as a big dude that can anchor the middle from Baylor. Yeah. Yeah. He's a guy that no matter what Seattle's roster context was in any year, I would want them to draft him. You know, like he's, he, he's a dude. He's, he's yeah. really good. Um, he, uh, there are so few guys that are 330 or, or heavier that have his kind of explosion and like movement ability in space. So, I mean, yeah, like first he beats blocks all day long. Guys can't move him, but then he also gets off blocks and then he could run down the line. And that's, that was a lot of their problem this year. Like in that two, four, five front that we're talking about, there'd be instances where even Al Woods, they're winning their block, but they can't make the tackle in the same gap. Like Al Woods had some really odd moments, stuff like that. That's something somewhere where Siaka, I mean, he, he excels. Um, so he, he, one, he reinforces your, your nose depth and eventually he'd be the guy when Al Woods ages out um, in bear as a true zero technique um, nose tackle. And then when they go into this two four five front where the nose tackle is now playing a two eye, I mean he can, he would make life so much easier on the linebackers because they can mm -hmm. fit off of him. They know they can make decisions knowing that he's not just going to win his gap, but he might make the play. So then, therefore, I get to do X, Y, and Z, as opposed to being a little more conservative when you're behind Puna Ford. He doesn't quite have the mass to play in that front as much as he did. Um, in all the situations and context that he did. So Siaka would, he would benefit them a lot. And also he can rush the passer a little bit. He may only be a 40% snap player, but in his yeah. snaps, he can still get after it. I mean, if you, if you give him a one-on-one -on -one with the center, which is what bear does, he's going to demolish the guy. I think um, a lot of the centers in this league really can't block very well. It's might be the weakest position position athletically. So I, I think he, I think he'd be a really good player and he might be there. I mean, if they take him at 20, I wouldn't be crying, you know, but yeah. he might be there with one of their early, early second round picks. And that'd be, that'd be well worth it. It seems to be the range he's going. Um, mm -hmm. it, tell me this, let's talk about that 20th pick for just one more second, because uh, I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. It, and this speaks to your confidence in the state of the secondary. We know we all love what Tariq Woolen did. You talked about uh, Kobe Bryant and his transition to the slot. Um, Trey Brown, once he came back healthy, really didn't get a lot of snaps uh, mm -hmm. out there. Mike Jackson was solid, but he's a restricted free agent or exclusive rights free agent. I think this offseason um, at 20, you know, for all the mock drafts I've done and, and big boards I've looked at, it looks like that's where the run on corners is, is going to be at its thickest in the first round. And just the other day, Lance Zerline said, this is the best cornerback draft he's seen in a long time. And I know Seahawks fans will tell you until they're blue in the face that the Seahawks don't yeah. draft corners high. Yeah. But if yeah. John Schneider means what he said the other day and it's truly best player available and they're sitting there at 20 and there's a Joey Porter or a Christian Gonzalez or one of these other sure. guys, sure. would it make sense to you to add to that room? Yeah, I, I think it would. And they can, they can take two different paths with it. So 
I mean, like I thought Mike Jackson for giving his story played admirably. He might even get better because he's so inexperienced and fairly young, but they probably could do better than him. Um, Kobe Bryant. I mean, Pete Carroll is super serious about him as a nickel. Um, I, I, I mean, in a perfect world, like if I was playing Madden with this team, I'd move Kobe back out to left corner and, and draft or find a slot corner. Let Kobe just be the perimeter corner that he was. He can in college probably be better than Mike Jackson. So, but that said, they can go two different paths with this. Um, if there's a corner they really like, and maybe their propensity to, to focus corner early could come at the behest of Sean Desai and Carl Scott. They have different, they might have different desires or needs. Pete Carroll might want to oblige them. You know, Carl Scott recently came from the college ranks. He knows these guys intimately, you know, the part of the draw and getting Sean Desai was that we're going to make big moves here, you know, so they might be willing to think outside of their box. Right. The other side of it though, is that Earl Thomas at Texas was a slot corner and Hmm. the whole thing about him becoming a full-time safety that was a projection. That wasn't like he's a prototypical cover three deep safety. No, like he started off in the box playing in the slot. And then eventually they kind of, it was like a, it was like just an organic thing where he became the deep safety and Cam Chancellor came into the box. Right. So if, if they're looking to just upgrade on Mike Jackson, then sure. Look at, look at some of those guys. But then where I think it gets really interesting, where if they're willing to put Kobe back outside, you can look at Thinking Brian Branch. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they can look at Brian Branch or even Christian Gonzalez, who has played a little bit in the slot. And hmm. so what you can do okay. there is in base defense, you could have Gonzalez be on the outside. And then you go into nickel, you kick him in like the Rams do with Ramsey yeah. often, not always. And then you put Kobe back out at left corner. Um, with Branch, he's a full-time slot. You're not going to put him outside, but he can do a lot of things that, I mean, the zone responsibilities, the man responsibilities, the run defense is awesome. You can blitz with him. Um, You can draft him, put him in the slot, and then you let just Kobe be a full-time left corner. But then the way the Brian Branch theory is, depending on what happens with Jamal Adams' Mm -hmm. health slash contract, Branch is also a legit safety too, much like Earl Thomas. So you can, he can be your backup safety long-term option as well. And then you just go find another slot corner, you know, uh, down, down the road. Um, or you can play around with it. So I'm all for taking a DB at 20. If there's a guy they really like, and I, I don't think you're crazy at all for thinking they could go that direction. Cause they're, I mean, they're kind of, they're in a new world now, yeah. you know, and I think that that extends to uh, roster building. And also they have never had this much draft capital in the first round before, at least it's been a long time. So they might be willing to make exceptions if they really like a guy. Yeah. Brian Branch is a guy that when mock draft season started, he was pretty much my go-to at 20, especially after watching yeah. how he performed in the, in the semifinal and, yeah. and what, awesome what a dominant player he was there and how he would fit yeah. with what they do. It just seems like a Seahawk. Um, yeah. But man, it's all you have to do to get into a debate with somebody is throw, throw that idea <laughs> out there uh, because yeah. what, what you're going to get coming back is uh, nope, got to go yeah. guard, got to go yeah. interior offensive line there, got to go defensive line, whatever. And, and, uh, to me, it's just, just take the best damn players at each spot yeah. and, and figure out yeah. a way to make them fit. Well, and, and one more thing I want to add to that, as far as like trying to get a beat on what they may or may not do, like John Schneider comes from the, the Ron Wolf tree, right? In green Bay. And those guys draft DBs in the first two rounds all day long. So it's not like Schneider is opposed to it. It's just more like honoring, like, Hey, Pete can get 
guys in the third round and coach them up and, you know, we can be okay at corner, if not better than that. You know, rarely does that bite them in in the rear, you know? Well, and that's um, always been, that's something I have tried to convince people of is the yeah. idea that just because they haven't done it before doesn't mean they're going to do it or not going to yeah. do it now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, but we got to have They just have haven't had the line. opportunity really. They, and they haven't yeah. had to. Right. You know? Right. It's not that exactly. they set out and decided, you know, we're not going to draft corners above the fifth round. We're just not. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah not exactly. Organizational I mean, the, philosophy. The reason why they couldn't draft a left tackle is because there are no left tackles at 28, 29. Right. The, the soon as they get a ninth overall pick, Charles Cross, boom, you know? Yeah. So they've had two yeah. top 10 picks and they've worked out pretty well. Yeah. At left tackle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, there you go. All right, Griffin, man, I appreciate your time. I could talk to you for another hour. Um, uh, we'll have to bring you back later in the off season. Um, uh, it won't be on the field goals show, but you and I will be in touch <laughs> on, uh, on what I'm doing next. And we'll, uh, as we get closer to the draft, I want to get your thoughts on the other side of the ball too, because there's some, certainly th- some upgrades can be made there. And, and I love your thoughts on that as well. So, uh, tell everybody, uh, about your podcast that you get, you guys do and where they can find it. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I do a podcast with, uh, Maddie F Brown and Ty Dan Gonzalez called Seattle overload. Um, you can just type those words on, on, uh, you know, Google or, or Twitter, you'll, uh, you'll find it. We're on Odyssey on YouTube as well. So we're not hard to find if you're interested. Um, yeah. And we just, we just talk, you know, Seahawks go over scheme. We'll be talking a lot about, um, you know, the, the upcoming draft and free agency and all that fun stuff. So I'm glad you guys added Ty to that group. Cause he just doesn't have enough podcasts to do. He's just not on enough shows right now. That, so. that he is a busy man. I'll uh, tell you that. Uh, you and they can find you on Twitter at C Mike's spin move. That is Griffin Sturgeon. Thanks for joining me, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. That is going to do it for me. And this episode of field goals, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Dana and I will get together again. And again, just a reminder that field goals will be coming to you through February through at least the the 28th of February under the field goals moniker. And then I'll have some updates soon about what I'm doing next and uh, Dana as well. So thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Seahawks forever. And remember to subscribe to that podcast. So you get notifications of new shows over the next month. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you.